I'm serious. Like if someone had said, I've got a gun to your head, hum, hum season change to me. I'd be like, ah, just pull the trigger. I, I, I honestly can't do it. Travel back in time to the 80s, reliving the music. You can't have the Pretender's first album. That's mine. I bought it. You did not. The catchphrases. Did you have a brain tumor for breakfast? And the wannabes. Sometimes I see you dance around the house in my underwear. Doesn't make me Madonna. Never will. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your old pal, Spearsy. And Chuck Coverly. And today we go back in time to celebrate the number two hits in the magical year of 1988. What did I tell you? 88 miles per hour! Stuck in the 80s is sponsored by the 80s Cruise. Join Brad, Chuck, and me in 2023 for a week-long trip back into time aboard the Royal Caribbean Navigator of the Seas. Is that the longest sentence I have to read today? Because that would be great. (laughs) Performers will include Devo, Brett Michaels, Kim Wilde, The Church, Howard Jones, Living Color. I was wrong. This is the longest sentence. Jody Watley, The Smithereens, with special guest vocalist Marshall Crenshaw, Vixen, Cutting Crew, Midge-Your, Autograph, and more. First-time guests can get $200 of cabin credit just by using the promo code STUCK. When booking, just go to www.the80scruise.com for more information. <laughs> I am the monarch of the sea. Hey, Chuck Coverley's here, the mayor of the 80s cruise. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Do you have a plaque that says that and has your, you know, the honorable Charles Coverley? I, I have a shirt. I have a headband. I have socks. Um, I have it across the butt of my shorts, but nothing else. Nothing crazy. <laughs> well, it's it's only right that you're here because we would not have this series without you. You were so uh, thoughtful and benevolent, if that's the right word. And with me, it rarely is. Um, <laughs> to to put together this amazing list of songs that got to number two on the charts, but no further. And you. I think you started back in the 60s. I did. I started early 60s and went through, and it, it was fun to see patterns starting to emerge and artists that, uh, you know, in the late 60s, it was the Carpenters. They were, just, in the early 70s, they were just so many number two hits. I felt bad for them. CCR, same thing. So many number two hits. They were just that close and and couldn't get there. And so I decided to just make this list uh, because I wanted to make some CDs many years ago. Everybody was making number one hit CDs. You can get those anywhere. Nobody was making number two hit CDs. So that was the impetus for the uh, yeah. for the project. And, and patterns continue into the 80s when you start seeing the bands that always block a number two. It's always Michael Jackson. It's always George Michael. It's stuff like that. Hall and Oates. Hall and Oates. Yeah. yeah. And so you see these songs that you are so part of the fabric of the decade and you're just certain they were a chart topper, but they weren't. Yeah. Every time a song came on, I, I mean, I made the CDs. We listened to them on a trip down to uh, Savannah, Georgia from New Jersey. 
So there's plenty of time to listen to music. And every time a song came on, my wife, Amory, would say, this wasn't a number one. And I would go, I know, right? Like, how did this yeah. song not get there? Well, then you look at the number one song that kept it out and you go, oh, that's why. Yeah. So we are in the year 1988. We're at the point of the 80s now where there's so many of these each year that we're breaking them into two parts. So those, this is part one of 1988. We'll get back together again soon, I hope, and do part two. And I, I chuckle when I say that because the last time we did one of these, it was before Christmas, just to put things in context. Yeah, it's been yeah. a while. Happy New Year, by oh, the way. Thank you. It's, it's almost halfway over, but... Merry New Year! Happy New Year. In this country, we say Happy New Year. <laughs> thank you for correcting my English with stinks. Uh, Brad, by the way, is not here. He was supposed to be here. Um, that man is working like a dog these days, and it's really hard to nail him down sometimes. And even when we think he'll be available, you know, between the uh, the job with its demanding hours and then, of course, the, the time zone differences, it just – he gave us the blessing to continue on without him today. But uh, – He'll be missed, sorely missed. <laughs> he'll be in our thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> and prayers. <laughs> okay, let's get started. What's the first number two hit you have for 1988? All right, so the first number two hit is Hazy Shade of Winter by the Bangles. I was so hard to please. Look around. He's a brown and the sky. He's a hazy shade of winter. In the salvation army band. Down by the side, it's bound to be a better ride than what you got planned. You know, and that song is Hazy Shade of Winter, not A Hazy Shade of Winter, which was the original written by Paul Simon. Uh, it was originally recorded by Simon and Garfunkel in 66 during the Parsley Sage, Rosemary, and Time Sessions, <laughs> released as a standalone signal. And it was later included on the duo's 1968 album, Bookends. It made it to number 13 back then on the Billboard Hot 100, which brings us to the Bangles version. Their version peaked at number two, February 688, they recorded this for the movie Less Than Zero, right? Uh, when was the last time you saw that movie? God, it's, it's been decades. Oh, my gosh. It it uh, it hurts to watch <laughs> that movie. It did. But, you know, I'll do anything I have to do for the research for this. Uh, but I can't, I can't hear that song without thinking of that movie simply because of the music video. It was so tied in uh, to the movie itself. Um, but the Bengals were approached to do a song for that movie. And they had been doing that song for a while since they formed in 81. They were doing it since like 83. So they had some time in between tours to uh, record that song for the movie. And like I said, the music video is basically a promotional video uh, for the film because it, it, it was filmed very much like the movie. Uh, the Bangles are walking through this room with TV sets around them, which is very much like the scene when Andrew McCarthy's uh, character walks into the party and there's all these tvs everywhere but man i'll tell you that movie was hard to get through um i i, I think it's because i just i didn't connect at the time i didn't connect with what they were doing uh you know these rich kids in southern california la i had never been there you only saw it on tv it just seemed full of all the stereotypes of la with the drug scene and the music and the clothes and you know the rich kids uh, which was very different from my upbringing here in suburban uh, New Jersey. Yeah. Um, 
No, same same difference here. I mean, I, I when I watched the, I think that's one of the reasons too that I, I didn't connect with the movie. I just I had nothing in common with anything that anyone was going through in that movie, and even the drug use. I think the only drug I've ever seen in my life is pot. I mean, that's it. I've never. I mean. That's the end of my drug stories. <laughs> yeah, I've seen I've seen other drugs. I've never used them. I've seen. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I didn't know what it was. I was DJing at this place once, and the owner came over and was like, "Is this yours?" And I thought somebody spilled some Clorox or something, and I was like, "What the hell is it?" Like I had no idea. That's how <laughs> sheltered of a life I led. Um, but yeah, I just I didn't connect with that. And even back then, the characters graduated in 1985. So that's like what one year off from each of us, right? I graduated eighty six. I was eighty five. You were eighty. You were eighty five. Yeah. So, you know, right there, but still not, not connecting with those yeah. people at all. Heck um, no. I mean, I mean, a bit a big night in, in Clearwater, Florida, was like a six pack of Michelob and a sausage and onion pizza. See, I wasn't even there yet. I I didn't even have. Well, I you listen to my family; they'll say I got drunk at thirteen at a softball party because <laughs> they didn't have any. <laughs> I don't remember that at all, so I can't. I can't comment on the validity of that assertion. But we, uh, it, it wasn't until college really that you know I started drinking any kind of beer, and then didn't drink it for years until I went to Germany and actually had a beer that tasted good. And then I said, "Oh, this is what beer is supposed to taste like." Yeah. So now it's you know once in a while I'll crack open what? a Kurzwitzer Schwarzbier. Yeah, bless you. The um. I, I went to Germany this summer between my junior and senior year in high school. We we had a European trip for the whole summer, and, and we, we went in connection with this junior college, and so we got nine hours of humanities credits if we did it. And we had to, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we had to do, like certain museums and such and term papers we had to write. But one of the French benefits was European drinking ages. And that's so right. that's where I sort of learned how to, to drink beer and – and especially in Germany, where you go to the the beer gardens of uh, Munich, and um, I think I went to the Platzl and drank two and a half of those giant, you know, glasses of beer and the Einmas, the real big one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then there was an unfortunate incident on the long walk home to the <laughs> hotel that I I won't get into right now, but I had to soak my jeans overnight in the bathtub, so you can oh, no. fill in the blanks if you want. One of the cool things about talking about your long walk back, one of the cool things about using uh, uh, an Android phone is that Google, if you're using the uh, GPS, it'll track everywhere you went. We went to uh, Munich several years ago for uh, Oktoberfest. And when you look at the trip straight to the Theresian Vise, which is where the where they have the, the October, it's like a straight line. The trip back is <laughs> just all over the place, just wandering aimlessly looking for a hotel after having maybe three or four of those real big uh, beers. But man, what a what a fun time. It's, it's nice that you cut your teeth, you know, on some real beer. Yeah. Yeah. It was a magical time. And I don't take it for granted. I I still have the I should put the photos online, maybe with part of the show notes of that. But uh, that would be great. Yeah. I think I still have the picture around here somewhere because i think I, I either stole it or i took it and someone paid for it and didn't tell me and just let me believe that i'd stolen it and 
but I, I know I've had it for years. If, if it's it's got to be around here. I'm I'm looking around my my office right now. I don't see it. But this is not to take away from the less than zero experience. No, no, no. And one one last thing about less than zero. Uh, Brad Pitt was an extra at the party scene who was paid a whopping thirty eight dollars for for his appearance. Nice, righteous bucks. So, what song kept this out of the top spot? It was kept out by Tiffany. Uh, Could have been. So, written by the one-hit wonder songwriter Lois Blaish, it actually reached the number one spot the same week that the Bangles hit number two, but it stayed on for one more week before being replaced by Seasons Change by Expose, which I think we're going to be hearing about later. You bet. It was included on the 87 debut album, uh, Tiffany, and was the follow-up to her first single, I Think We're Alone Now, which also spent two weeks at number one in November uh, the previous year. In my mind, those were not number one songs, but uh, as I'll say shortly, uh, 1988, I was pretty disconnected from what was on the charts. So, see, in '88, I I was in college, and and we talked about this on a previous episode, but I was getting CDs sent everywhere. (laughs) I was getting them sent home. I was getting them sent to my grandparents' house, you know, through the CD clubs. Getting them sent to college. So a lot of these uh, albums I had. And then, you know, you listen to the album several times, you hear it on the radio, you're like, oh, yeah, I, I know that song. So every one of these songs, I either have the CD for, but I remember listening to uh, on the radio. Um, I, I don't think that I gave up listening to Top 40 for probably several other, several more years to go. I was still in it to win it. So here's my first number two hit of 1988. This is a band I didn't catch on to until actually uh, the podcast years. Um, but in uh, February 1988, this song hit number two. That's What Have I Done to Deserve This by Pet Shop Boys. And we can argue the rest of the day whether it's the Pet Shop Boys or Pet Shop Boys, but I'm just going to call them Pet Shop Boys. Uh, The song was written by Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe, who are the two members of Pet Shop Boys. Um, But the other contributor was um, Allie Willis. Um, She's an American songwriter who co-wrote songs like September and Boogie Wonderland for uh, Earth, Wind & Fire. She won Grammy Awards for Beverly Hills Cop in The Color Purple. And she was actually nominated. This is not an 80s thing at all, but that's just kind of weird. She's oddly enough remembered because she was nominated for an Emmy Award for uh, writing the theme song for Friends, I'll Be There For You. So, Wow, so she's not a one-hit wonder. She had other stuff. No, she's not. But nice. um, this was actually a song that the band had come up with a long time ago. In fact, 
uh, Neil Tennant, the lead singer. Uh, I don't even know if you call Neil Tennant a lead singer. He's more like a spoken word artist. But I, I mean that with all the love in the world because, I mean, if I could be Neil Tennant right now, I would be. <clears throat> I'd just be a much more phlegmy version of him. Um, but he wrote this song back when he was a music uh, writer. Um, and so he would ride the bus to work to and from uh, the office every day, and these were the words that kind of came into his head. Um, they they had the song ready for their first album, but they knew they needed a third person. They asked Dusty Springfield, who uh, Chris, I mean, who Neil adored uh, growing up, and she turned him down. But wow. she but she came back after she heard West End Girls. So Dusty Springfield, for those who don't know much about her, one of the most successful British female performers, um, both in the UK and in the US. She had a ton of hits. But um, oddly enough, I think she's probably best remembered for singing Son of a Preacher Man. Oh, yeah. Uh, when this song, What Have I Done to Deserve This, became a hit, it revived her career, and it helped get Son of a Preacher Man onto the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, or, or So I've Read. Nice. So in case you're wondering what the song is about, this is where it kind of gets interesting. Three different opinions by three <laughs> different writers. Uh, Neil Tennant says it was about being a bored 80s yuppie. Chris Lowe, who plays the keyboards uh, and synthesizers for uh, PSB, he says it's about uh, the personal financial gain uh, during the Thatcher and Reagan years. Um, And if you think about the opening lines, you always wanted a lover. I only wanted a job. You can sort of see that. And alas, Ali Willis uh, said it's what we all think it is, which is it's about someone who's in a relationship they know they shouldn't be in. Well, duh. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> the most obvious one on the surface. So when um, when Pet Shop Boys was inducted into the, um, I think it was the the Brit Hall of Fame, the Brit Awards, they performed this with Lady Gaga taking Dusty Springfield's spot because she passed. Uh, Dusty passed away in the late nineties. So, what song kept it out? Well, it would take two songs. To keep out this majestic uh, creature of a tune. Season Change by Expose, which we'll talk about in a second, and Father Figure by George Michael. mid-tempo songs show you exactly why I stopped listening to popular music in the late 80s. And I, I, I that sounds a little harsh, and I, I guess I meant it to be. But I just did. I was in college, and everything I was listening to were songs that you got, like, at the, the local record store. So I was listening to a lot of R.E.M. and Camper Van Beethoven and some, some probably some Captain Beefheart and uh, Husker Du... Stuff like that, the post the post punk songs. I wasn't listening to to to. I had to Google expose and and season change and listen to it and go like, yeah, I sort of remember this song. 
Again, that was one of the CDs that I got from BMG. Yeah. Record and tape and CD club. Yeah. Uh, Expose was actually a group formed in Miami. So you'd think that I would know them a little bit better. But you got to live in Florida to understand the complicated relationship we have with Miami. It's, um, it's, 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 it's just like, it's an, it's, it's almost like it's another state. It just, when you get down to South Florida, things are just everything about what, everything that's in Florida changes when you get down to South Florida, the traffic, the vibe, the, the people. So, and I, I don't, and I don't necessarily mean that in all negative terms. I, to be honest, I, I mean, I love going to Miami and eating the food anyway, but the, um, but Expose was a, a freestyle group. They formed in 84 in Miami. And allegedly, according to my research, they were the first group to have four top 10 hits on the Billboard Hot 100 chart on it from a debut album. So uh. that shows you how disconnected I was from popular music at that point, that I w- can, wouldn't have even really know anything about them. Can you name any other song on that debut album? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Like if someone had said, I've got a gun to your head, hum, hum season change to me. I'd be like, ah, just pull the trigger. I, I, I honestly can't do it. So give, give me, give me a chance to do a podcast first. And I'll come back and do it for you. I swear. I'll tell you all you need to know about it. <laughs> season change. That's all I know. <clears throat> That's all you need to know. I can't say anything about father figure. Were you, were you a fan of that song? I was a fan of the whole album. When, when people say, what albums can you listen to front to back? You know, just pop in the CD uh, and let it play all the way through. You know, there's several ones that come to mind uh, from the 80s specifically. Um, But seriously, probably by Phil Collins, I can just put that in, let it play. Most of the Genesis albums from the 80s, I can do the same thing. Prince, Purple Rain, uh, Peter Gabriel, so. And then that's one of them as well. Like, I need to listen to that. Put it in, just let it play straight through. uh, All the way, like it's hard to listen to just one. Because if I hear just one song, then I'm going to listen to the whole album again. But yeah, yeah, that's the, the, the interesting thing about that, uh, song is, um, it was the, it was the first song that he had that didn't break the top 10 in, in the UK, you know, and he had a string of all those number one hits in the U S and, you know, all those top 10 songs, but that was the first one that didn't make it in uh, native UK. Huh? I, I mean, I, I, no disrespect to George Michael. I, I was a huge fan of him. In fact, I, I think one of the last podcasts that we did, maybe one of the ones that we did together, we talked about how the whole TV show Eli Stone revolved around That's right. George Michael music. So, uh, you know, he's he, still I, on my list. I have to go back and watch those. Yeah, good luck. I <laughs> I would love to do. In fact, if I, I can find it on YouTube tonight, I might do that instead of um, only build, only murders in this building instead or something like that. I don't know. I'm having a hard time finding TV inspiration these days. Um, Anyway, give us some inspiration. What's your number? Uh, what's your next number two song from 1988? All right, the next song that made it to number two and no further was this song by In Excess. Look at them go, look at them kick. Makes you wonder how the other half lives. Down inside, down inside, every single one of us. And that was Devil Inside. It was uh, released as the second single from the uh, album Kick. 
Uh, song peaked at number two for two weeks on the Billboard Hot 100 in April of 88. And it actually saw its greatest success in the U.S., peaking at only number 47 in the U.K., which is kind of strange for a, a band like that. Like normally the U.S. and the U.K. on big acts like that uh, around the same. It, it only made it to number six in their native Australia. Uh, it did get to number three in Canada, so I guess it had much better uh, success in North America. Uh, of course, I have no idea how far it went in Mexico or Cuba, for that matter. Uh, it was the follow-up single to the number one hit, Need You Tonight, which was In Excess's only number one song on the Billboard Hot 100. Wow. Yeah. I was surprised by that, too. I'm yeah. Like, Man, they had so much good stuff. And for the previous album, too. But, uh, you know, Listen Like Thieves, I just thought there was going to be. But nope, that was their only number one hit. And just like all the other songs on the Kick album, Devil Inside was written by Michael Hutchins and the keyboardist Andrew Farris talking about the music video. Now, this is this is interesting. It was directed by the late, great Joel Schumacher, who had just completed The Lost Boys, uh, which included two In Excess songs. So I'm pretty sure the band was in his ears. And uh, those two songs were Good Times and Laying Down the Law. And this was his first music video that he ever did and you can see his cinematographic style and influence in his um, from his movies are evident in this video with the use of handheld camera smoke machines backlighting uh, lots of cuts you know um, the video plays out as a narrative depicting the story of the song while the band plays in a smoky club in Balboa California and that music video was kind of a departure from what they had done previously which was the videos were mostly recorded very brightly lit studios focusing mainly on michael hutchins's face because for obvious reasons so uh, an interesting side note about that album is atlantic records didn't like it they presented it to them and atlantic said no we don't like it we're going to give you a million dollars to go back and re-record and rework it and the band said no <laughs> uh, we're just this is what you got and we're going to release it and it just kind of goes to show you sometimes the record companies really don't know what they're doing you know they just make bad decisions sometimes um, but of course it went six times platinum in the u.s uh, remains the band's best-selling album of all times probably sold 11 or 12 million copies worldwide um, but what a what a great album and a great song from that album I, you know, the wonderful thing about in excess is I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say anything bad about them. I mean, pe people look upon them with a lot of respect and reverence. I don't, don't, I don't, I can't think of a single person who's ever said, you know, in excess and eh, not really my thing. Right. And, and but, I, but nobody, likewise, nobody would say, oh, you know, too formulaic to this, to that. People just, they were an extremely lovable band. And, yeah, well, and, in, in my research, I found Andrew Ferris, who had two other brothers in the band. They were the Ferris brothers, basically, and Michael Hutchins became in excess. Uh, didn't want to have any influence from previous songs on any of the stuff that they were writing. So he was he was trying to be very forward thinking, didn't want any of the songs to sound not only like each other. Uh, they didn't, he didn't want them to sound like anything that had previously existed. So a lot of that, I don't know where they drew their inspiration from if you're just pulling it out of the ether. But I thought that was that was kind of interesting. That is interesting. So, just curious, like what what song could have kept this one out of the top spot? Well, this song was so huge; it took two songs 
to keep it out of the number one spot. The first one was Billy Ocean's Get Out of My Dreams, Get Into My Car. song was written by Billy Ocean and mega producer and songwriter Mutt Lang. Uh, 1988 single spent two weeks at number one in April that year, as well as hitting number one in Canada, Ireland, Norway, South Africa, Netherlands, Belgium, Australia. I can only imagine that it maybe went to number one in his home country of Trinidad. I have no idea uh, if that would maybe include Tobago as well. It was Billy's third and final U.S. number one hit as well as his seventh and last song to reach the top 10 in the U.S. So in a way, that was kind of his, you know, salute, uh, goodbye, you know, swan song to the the top 10 in the, the, the charts. And I can't think of any other song that he did after that. One more thing about that um, song is it was featured in the 88 film License to Drive, starring the two quarries. And I did not watch that movie <laughs> in preparation for this podcast. You said there was a second song? There is a second song. And that is Where Do Broken Hearts Go by Whitney Houston. Oh, where do broken hearts go? Can they find their way home? All right, so that song was released as the fourth single off the Whitney album, which I find it interesting. Her her debut album was Whitney Houston. Then her second album was Whitney. And I'm wondering why the third one wasn't just called Wit. Uh, but it came into the Billboard Hot uh, 100 at number 47, and it took less than two months for her to get to number one in April of that year. Interesting enough, uh, Interestingly enough, I found out that that song was originally written for Smokey Robinson, uh, but then it was given to Whitney and she didn't want to do the song, but Clive Davis uh, convinced her that it was going to be a number one song. So then she relented and decided, okay, I guess we'll do it. And of course it became her seventh consecutive number one hit in the US. And that is a record that stands till this day. She's kind of weird. If you look at the backstory on a, a lot of her hits, there's there's a lot of songs that she had to either be talked into doing, and then there's a lot of songs that people wrote for her that she was just like, nope, not going to do it, and didn't do it. Like I, the the song "Waiting for a Star to Fall," yeah, was written for her, and it sounds like a Whitney Houston song, but she didn't. I, th- I think it was Clive Davis who said, "Nope, not going to happen," and so uh, boys meet. Boy Meets Girl does that instead. Yeah. So that was their 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 one hit, right? That they had. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's amazing. Seven consecutive number one hits for her, um, and with that song, she also became the first female artist to achieve four number one songs from a single album. Which I was surprised that that was you know she was the first one to do that. But to date, only four other women have actually done that, and. Um, Two of them, two of those ladies were 80s acts. Can you guess what they are? Um, no. 
was not prepared for a pop quiz. Who is it? So um, the first one is Paul Abdul's Forever Your Girl oh, okay. uh, had four number one. And then Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation. Oh, geez, that I should have known that one. That, that yeah. feels stupid for not. Yeah, I was I was asking that so that the the listeners could maybe quiz themselves. They could <laughs> yeah. pause and then jump no. on Google real quick. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad that we do that. I hope I hope people do take the chance to to, to dive a little deeper on some of these songs because we only can touch on them, and, and so many of them have really interesting stories behind them. Right. You know what I like to dive deeper into right now? The, the Seggies. Ah, must be time for Stuck in the Arcade. <laughs> I love this segment, but sometimes we pick clips that are just impossible for anyone to know. Um, we would play a snippet of a theme song from an arcade game in the 80s. If you know it, you're entered into a drawing for some swag. Swag, usually in the form of a uh, postal friendly bottle opener. Oh, feels good to say that again. Uh, anyway, from <laughs> back in show 631, here was the clip. That's Gauntlet. Did you play Gauntlet? I I, 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 I play Gauntlet till my blister on my thumb. I loved that game. It was a four-player game in the arcade. You could be one of four characters. It was a Valkyrie. There was the wizard. There was the elf. And there was the warrior. And I always chose the warrior. And if I didn't have a whole pocket full of quarters, that warrior is about to die. They would say, <laughs> or warrior needs food badly. <laughs> so we used to say all the time, whenever we were hungry, you know, Coverly needs food badly. <laughs> Coverly is about to die. But yeah, I love that game. Yeah. Only two people got it right. Dave Augie August, who ought to know because he came dressed as that as part of a group, group costume, I think, two years ago. Two years ago, 2020. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And he was, I think he was the warrior. <laughs> He was, and uh, real, uh, real actor Rob, aka Beach Fit Rob, and we could spin the wheel if we need to, but really, I mean, <laughs> I think David you flip a coin. <laughs> Augie has all the swag from stuck in eighties he could ever want. So, uh, Beach Fit Rob, just email us your postal address, and we'll we'll get something out to you soon. Uh, in the meantime, here's this week's mystery arcade sound. <laughs> If you know it, email us at podcast at sit80s.com and tune in soon to find out if you're a winner. We'll be right back after this commercial break. You're watching the most exciting game you will ever see on your TV set. Telstar by Coleco with three different games. Telstar Tennis with digital scoring, variable speeds. Telstar Hockey. Each player controls a goalie plus a forward on the other side. Oops, a goal. And Telstar Singles Handball, a game you play yourself. Telstar Handball, Tennis, Hockey. All three at an exciting low price. For great family fun, hitch your TV to a Telstar. By Coleco. And we're back. We have just a few minutes left. It's time to play a little round of What's Your 80s Obsession? Chuck, what's your 80s obsession? Uh, still 80s video games, arcade games, console games. Like I just today was playing RBI Baseball on the Nintendo. So <laughs> very, uh, it, it's 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 just one of those things. Yeah. I I can't explain. I play them on the, I, I try to find the iPhone equivalent of them and play them as much as I can. But uh, my, my brain freezes over after a while. Um, 
my weird obsession, and I think we may have talked about this in the previous show, which we still haven't produced. I'm <laughs> sorry. About of course, if you're hearing this now, you're like, but I already heard the previous show. Well, that's just one of the magics of the t- time-space continuum. <laughs> we can record two shows before we release the first one. Uh, Iron Eagle movies. The um, When Brad came over a few weeks ago when he was in town, we watched um, most of the first Iron Eagle movie for some reason because it was on. And because I'm when I'm alone, when when the missus is out of town, I usually watch war movies. And if it's a war movie from the '80s, you know, special bonus. Uh, but Iron Eagle was on, and then this today I started watching Iron Eagle two for some reason, which is awful, awful movie. But I had to look. I had to look it up and see how many did they actually do these four. There's four Iron Eagle movies. So have you watched all four? I've watched three of them for sure. <laughs> I have not watched the. F- I don't think I've watched the fourth one because I, I didn't. I, I honestly didn't know it existed. I had to, you know, use the power of Google. But uh, I, I'll probably, if I can watch it, I will. I'm sure it's a piece of crap, but they probably got worse. As was that about the time when they started doing direct to video? Yes, and it might have been yeah. one of, of those. So <laughs> you never know. <laughs> um, before we go, I just want to say a quick thanks to our patrons. That we say it at the end of every show. Um, the it's a listener-supported show these days via Patreon, and if you become a member, you get invited to the uh, monthly Zoom happy hours. You get access to – there's a blog that I write in just about every day, although this week I took a break from it because I just – I needed to cool the brain off a little bit. But but normally I write almost every day in the blog, and, and you also – you know depending on your level of support, you, sometimes you get some extra swag. But um, normally we always try to say the names of the new patrons, and – been which has been really bad, bad about that this year. So since the start of 2022, um, special thanks to to Lee Edland, uh, John Thigpen, John Nelson, uh, Todd Pletz, Holly David, uh, William Lacosto, uh, DJ Retro DJ Travis Bell, and the man or woman known only as MC. <laughs> so uh, I hope you enjoyed the uh, number two hits of 1988. We'll be back with the second half of the year. I can only imagine how many more. Songs got blocked by George Michael and and Michael Jackson, and, but uh, we'll find out because uh, uh, Chuck and myself are right here, hopelessly stuck in the eighties. Stuck in the eighties is now on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, go to Patreon.com/slash Stuck in the Eighties Podcast. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music, and thanks for listening.